Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Daniel says, In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Now in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, Michael, against these, except Michael, your prince. Now, in this chapter, we're going to see Daniel receive. I'm going to suggest to you some visitors. For years, I've seen this only as one angel. But as I studied into this deeply to get ready for tonight, I started to understand there's a chance that this actually might be more than one visitor. And we'll get into that in just a second. But these visitors come to bring him understanding about what is still future for Israel and their land in the prophesied 70 weeks to come. If you remember, he had just been given the vision of the 70 weeks and the prophecy of the 70 weeks. But go to, go to Daniel chapter 10 again and look at verse 14. In verse 14, he says, And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Remember, we saw last time we were together, 
that in Daniel 9, he's been given the vision of the 70 weeks, and they're going to begin when the, the decree to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem happens. Then from there, there's going to be a 49-year period in the rebuilding. And then from there, there's going to be another 62 seven-year periods. And then the Messiah was going to come and be cut off. And we saw last time he's going to experience capital you know, punishment. And then I have nothing. We saw there was a break in the prophecy. And then at the very end, there's going to be one last seven-year period in which this Antichrist is going to come, make a covenant or confirm a covenant with the many, and then halfway through that covenant, break it and step into the wing of the temple and declare himself to be God. And the Jews were told, get out of Israel, get out of Judah at that time, run for your life. Now, this chapter, though, sets the stage for the full vision and message that will continue into chapter 11 and chapter 12. What chapter 10 does is just lay the foundation for what chapter 11 and chapter 12 are going to say. And, and you're going to see that as we get into that next week. Uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12 are full of unbelievable detail about what's to come in the 70 weeks that are still yet to happen. At this point, the 70 weeks haven't begun for the nation of Jerusalem. And so in that, it's going to get prophecy about what's going to happen during the beginning part of that. And also we'll deal with what will happen at the very, very end after that break that we're in right now called the church age. Now, chapter 10 happens two years after Daniel's visit from Gabriel in chapter 9. So this now means this is 536 B.C. And Daniel's about 85 years old. Now, at this point, Daniel has seen 50,000 people leave Babylon to go back to Israel to live there and to rebuild the temple. It's not the rebuilding of the tree to rebuild the walls, but it's the rebuilding of the temple. Go with me to Ezra chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Remember, Daniel chapter 1 talked to us that this was the third year of the, the, the reign of king, Cyrus, king of Persia, that he had chapter 10. So he's already seen this group head back. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So we know from, if you were to keep reading in Ezra, you'd find out that 50,000 people actually listed who and gave the names of some. It said 50,000 people left Babylon and went back to Israel to begin the rebuilding of the temple. Now, some people have wondered why Daniel wasn't a part of that 50,000 that went back. Remember, here it is. If you go back to Daniel chapter 1, you'll see in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, he's getting this vision. And he's actually uh, on the banks of the Tigris River at this time. Why isn't he back in Jerusalem? I mean, he cared about Israel. He'd been praying for the... He's 85 years old. And actually, some people said that that's possibly why. I lean toward that's not possibly why, and here's why. The Bible actually tells us there were old men who went back and saw the rebuilding. Go with me to Ezra chapter 3. 
Look at verses 8 through 13. In Ezra chapter 3, in verses 8 through 13, it says, Now in the second year after the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and head of fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that people couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. How long had they been in captivity? Seventy years. So there were some men who were old enough at the time to remember what Solomon's temple looked like, and when they saw the foundation of this new one and how much smaller it was, when everybody else is praising God, they're like, guys, this isn't anything like the other one was. So were there old men that went back? Yeah. So chances are he didn't go back because he was old. Now there's other speculation. Sorry. He, yeah, chances are, I make sure I word it correctly, that he, one of the reasons that he went, didn't go back, people say, is because he was too old. I don't think that that's a good answer because there were old men that went back. Is that clear? All right. I, I hope so because I didn't know what I said. All right. Here, here's the next thing. There's another speculation over the fact they think, though, that maybe God had more responsibility for Daniel to do there in Persia. And that's a possibility as well because Daniel does something interesting. Go back to Daniel chapter 10 and look at verse 1. It says, in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the vision. Wait a minute. Why does he give his Babylonian name? He's a government official. And it, this is the first time it's ever done again since chapter 5. But for some reason, he brings out his Babylonian name. Chances are that might be why he does it is because he still had responsibility and leadership in what was Babylon, which is now Persia. Let me say this to you. That's a possibility. We, but the real answer for why Daniel didn't go back is we don't know. We don't know. But for some reason, and we do know this much about Daniel, if the Lord wanted him to go back, he'd have gone back. But the Lord had him stay there for a reason. Now, if you look at verses 2 and 3, you'll see Daniel has been mourning for Israel in the temple for three weeks. It says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the um, first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river Tigris, and that's when he lifted up his eyes and he saw this one. So why was he mourning? Wouldn't you think he'd be happy? I mean... 
50,000 people have left Babylon. And at this point, the lay foundation of the temple is being laid. Why was he mourning? Well, possibilities again, that he, like the other old men, remembered what it used to look like, and he was grieved over the size of it. Possible. But there's also another thing that a lot of people may not realize. Go with me to Ezra chapter 4. He may have been seeking God's power and protection because of the opposition that the Jews were facing in the rebuilding process. Let me say something to you as you go back to Ezra chapter 4. We would automatically think that here Cyrus has made a decree that they can go back and rebuild and everything's going to go smooth now. No. Have you all ever noticed that when God anointed David as the king over Israel, he didn't just automatically become king? Even though God had said, you're going to be the king over Israel. And then after hiding from Saul and finally Saul dies, you would think, okay, it's going to be easy for David now. He's going to become king. And if you know anything about what the scripture says, he actually seeks the Lord. And the Lord tells him to go back to Judah, but he tells him specifically to go to Hebron. And when he's there, he's anointed to be the king over Judah. But two, five years into his reigning over Judah, because he reigned over Judah seven years and a few months. Five years into his reigning over Judah... All of a sudden, an insurrection starts in the northern kingdoms, and Abner comes and takes one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and anoints him to be the next king over all the northern tribes. And as much as you would think that David was now going to become king, there were still roadblocks. Have you ever put yourself in the mindset of the people in Jericho in Rahab's family? Remember, the spies come in and they say to Rahab, because you've done what you've done and you've hidden the spies, if you put this red cord out the window, when the nation of Israel comes, you and your whole family, whoever is in this room, will be spared. And can you imagine what must have gone on as she gathered all of her family and said, listen, you might not have heard the word of the, the spies, but listen to me. If we all wait here in this house, Israel's going to come and we will be spared. The city will be destroyed, but we will be spared. And I promise you that there's a chance that much of her family all said, okay. And then here come, they don't know how long it's going to be till Israel comes. But finally, Israel shows up. Here they come marching. You know what Israel does? They walk around the city and they go back to their tents. And if you know the scriptures, nobody said a word. Nobody yells up to the window, Rahab, we're going to do this six more times. Take a deep breath. They had no idea. It looked like their salvation was going to come. It looked like it was finally going to come true. And it didn't. And then the next day, here they come. Here they come. And they just walk around the city and no one says a word and they go back. They do this over and over. I've often wondered if some of Rahab's family that didn't hear the word from the spies said to her, this is a waste. This is a joke. Nothing's happening. It keeps looking like it's going to happen, but it doesn't happen. I was about to read to you, and I will, here in Ezra chapter 4, that even though God has said you can go rebuild, he's even got the king of, of Persia, Cyrus, making a decree. It doesn't mean it's all going to go easily. Let me say something to you. I wasn't planning on going here. It's not in my notes, but the Lord wants me to say this. Maybe someone that are lit or someone that's here. You might be praying for something, and every time it looks like it's about to happen, all of a sudden it doesn't. It's a test. Are you going to hang on and hang on to the promise of God and what he said? Are you going to believe his word or are you going to quit? Are you going to give up? Ezra chapter 4. 
verses 1 through 5. Look at what happened as they go back to rebuild. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhardon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Isn't this interesting? They go back to rebuild, and you'd think it would be smooth. And the enemies of Israel, they come and they kiss up to them a little bit. We want to help with you. They didn't want to help. They wanted to throw a wrench in the works. But they wisely said, no, you're not to be a part of this. And then their real attitude and their real heart came out, and they started trying to work against it, even bribing people and making people afraid. Folks, let me say something to you again. When you're trying to do what God is telling you to do, you may have even people, quote unquote, within the church who come alongside and act like they're on board, but their intentions may not be pure. You be faithful to do what God is telling you to do according to his word. So maybe, maybe Daniel was mourning because of the struggle that was happening in the rebuilding. Why was Daniel mourning and fasting for three weeks? We don't know. Again, these are all speculations from Scripture and possibilities, but we don't know. Go ahead. It's okay. Um, I mean, verse 1 is telling us he saw a vision. He understood the vision. Yes. And in those days I was mourning because he understood. But, but definitely, the vision, though, that he's about to, he's talking about that he understood, it hasn't, it's actually going to be described a little bit more in the verses that are coming. And now he's definitely been given the vision in chapter 9, we know of, two years earlier. It could be tied to some vision that he saw that's referenced in vision, verse 1. But I think, as you're about to see, the one that comes and speaks to him next in the next verses gives him the vision that lays him flat. But he did understand it. He just didn't like it, and it was scary, and it wasn't a lot of fun. So let's hold on to that question. It's a great question, and you may be right. But I'm going to suggest something slightly different. All right. If you remember, I started this lesson by saying that Daniel was visited by some visitors. For years, I've seen the angel in chapter 10 as the same angel the whole time. But deeper study has caused me to see that there may be more than one angel visiting Daniel here. And one of them may be the Lord Jesus himself. We've seen Jesus before in Scripture appear to man in the Old Testament in angelic form to give them insight into what he's about to do. And in these instances... He has company. Go with me back to Dan Genesis chapter 11. Genesis, I'm sorry, chapter 18. Genesis 18, verses 1 and 2. You remember when Abraham is visited by the Lord and a couple of other angels, the three visitors. In Genesis 18, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. Jump down to verse 17. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So God shows up to him. Jesus, before he took on flesh, comes and appears to Abraham, and he's got a couple of visitors with him, other angels. And the reason he shows up is to tell him about what's to come. It talks about how your wife's going to, this time next year, going to have a child. And then he goes on to talk to him about what's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. Also, if we, and we're going to take a look at this. If you go back and look at the descriptions of this one in verses 5 through 9, it parallels other descriptions of Jesus in his glory described in other places in the scripture. So look again here now in, in verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now, that description of whoever it is that's visiting him sure sounds a lot like descriptions of God as revealed in, in, the, in the scriptures. Go with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Look at verses 12 through 17. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. And I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. We also notice something else. Not, do you notice that John's reaction is pretty much what Daniel's reaction was when he turns and sees this one? He pretty much loses all strength and pretty much passes out. And that's what happened to John. And there's also a similarity here in the fact that Daniel says, I alone saw him. The people that were with me knew something was going on and they were afraid, but they didn't see what I saw. Go to Acts chapter 9, and let's take a quick look at when Paul met Jesus face to face after Jesus' resurrection. In Acts chapter 9, look at verses 3 through 7. Acts chapter 9, verse 3, Now as he, Paul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Jump over to chapter 22 of Acts. Look at verses 6 through 9. Paul recounts this story, and we get more details every time he does. In Acts 22, verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, 
And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Jump over to chapter 26. Look at verses 12 through 18. In chapter 26, verses 12 through 18. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Go back to verse seven of chapter 10 of Daniel. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So it appears that there's a strong possibility that this one that Daniel sees at the beginning in verses 5 through 9 isn't just an angel. Most likely could be Jesus himself. And when he spoke, Daniel fell as though dead. But now we get to verses 10 and following. It appears that once you get to verse 10, that this is a different angel. It says, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling upon my hands and knees. Now, you can say, well, Jim, there's nothing there that shows that it's, it's not Jesus. Well, keep reading. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling and he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is yet to come. Now, if this is the same angel is in verses five through nine, the angel in verses five through nine can't be Jesus. Can anybody tell me why? He wouldn't need any help. He would not need any help against the kings of Persia or the prince of Persia. He wouldn't need any help. He's the one that created the angels and the demons. He, he, he doesn't need any help. So either the one who appears to Daniel in verses 5 through 9 is the same one all the way through, or is a possibility that he first sees Jesus. Here's something from Jesus that we don't have recorded. What he hears knocks him onto the ground, and he has no strength. Another angel comes and says, I've been sent to you, touches him, and he gets up, and he says, let me tell you what's just happened to me and why, even though I was sent when you first started praying, here's why I haven't been here for three weeks. This angel also not only strengthens Daniel, but he encourages him with the truth that he is greatly loved. We talked about that last time we were together, but let me remind you. Go back to Daniel 9, look at verse 23. 
Daniel 9, verse 23. Gabriel says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Look at verse 18. And again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, let my Lord speak. So here we see three times, once in chapter 9, twice in chapter 10, that Daniel is reminded that he is loved. Now stick with me here. We touched on this last time we were together. I want to add something to it. The Lord Jesus, I believe, came with some other angels. I think actually there might have been a total of three. And they come to give him a vision of what is to come and to encourage him. And he's to pass it on and he's to share it. But the reason for the visit is to encourage him, to answer his prayer, to remind him that he's loved and to give him some future insight. Go to John chapter 15 and listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15. Look at verses 12 through 15. John 15 verses 12 through 15. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Did you catch that? Jesus says, I want you to love each other in the same way that I have loved you and I love you. And I don't see you as servants anymore. I see you as friends. Because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. But I want you to know what's to come. John chapter 16, look at verse 12. In John chapter 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So I say to you as an encouragement, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you've been born again, don't listen to the enemy. Don't listen to your flesh. You are loved. Jim, but you don't understand what goes on in my life. If I was loved, all these... See, again, you're looking at circumstances and not believing the Word of God. The Word of God says you are blessed and highly favored. The Word of God says you are chosen, you are loved. And not only that, He's not going to keep you clueless. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to understand everything. Because even Daniel, he understood this vision. But at the same time, when you get to chapter 12, he doesn't understand what he's shown there. There's parts he will and parts he won't. You'll never understand God fully. The Bible says you never will. And actually, even when we get to heaven and we know more, you're still never going to know everything. Because then one day you'll be God and you can't. He's going to be forever bigger than you will ever imagine. I love how the fact of when uh, C.S. Lewis wrote his Chronicles of Narnia and he had the vision of them going into heaven. It looked small when it started, but the further they went in, the bigger it got and the bigger it got and the bigger it got. I think that's what it's going to be. We're going to be learning things about God for eternity and we'll never tap the resources of it. But let me say this to you. Don't sit back and say, well, God will only tell Jim. If you got the spirit inside of you, he will show you. He will lead you. 
He will guide you. There are some things he wants you to be ready for. Just as a loving parent prepares their kids for college, just as a loving parent says, this is what you're going to experience in college, and I want you to be ready. Just as a loving parent says, this is what you're going to experience when you head to preschool, and I want to get you ready. Just as a loving parent prepares their kids for what is to come, your heavenly father knows what's to come in your life and in mine, and he wants us to be ready, but he wants us to walk with him, and he'll show us a little bit of time. Just tell me, Lord. No, that's not how the game's played, folks. He says, I'm going to give you what you need a day at a time. In Romans 11, 33 through 36, he says he doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't need you to be his counselor. It's all about him, and you'll never figure him out. But then when he gets to chapter 12, he says, but he still by his mercies allowed you and me to be a part of what he's doing. And if you lay your body as a living sacrifice, lay your flesh on the altar on a daily basis and say, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. He'll show you what his will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Some of you struggle because you want to know how it's all going to play out. Avoid that temptation. It's so strong. Half of you have already done all the math to try to figure out what year Jesus is coming back. Put your calculators away. If we were to know that, he'd tell us. Even though the Bible says no one knows, we still try to figure it out. We want to know how it's all going to play out. And he said, that's not what I want you to do. But I will tell you what you need to know. And when it's time, go ahead. We win in the end, but there's so much more than just that. I'm not one of these ones that says, well, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all plan out. You've heard preachers say that. No, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, a millennial kingdom that is coming on the earth because the scripture teaches these things. I'm not going to sit around and say, well, it's all going to pan out. Yes, we do win in the end, but there are things that we are to know. We have a responsibility that he has to use us, and he's going to show us some things. And actually... I hope by the end of our study of Daniel, especially when we get into chapter 11 and 12, you all get excited about the fact of God told Daniel so literally specific what was going to happen. And I'm going to show it to you. The prophecies that was going to happen to Israel in this land of Jerusalem in the years to come. We're going to talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. We're going to talk about Alexander the Great. A lot of that stuff was all prophesied in Daniel 11. We're even going to get into the Antichrist and what is still to come. And if the detail with which God gave Daniel was so specific to the point, then we can believe everything that God said about what's to come. So, folks, be encouraged. You are greatly loved. Now, this battle in the spiritual realm needs to be looked into further. This angel had to fight against the kings of Persia, and specifically the prince of Persia. Also, this angel says he's going to leave Daniel and go fight against the prince of Persia again, and then the prince of Greece. Now, there are ranks of angels and ranks of demons. But in some way, they're working either with God and his plans for heaven and earth or against God and his plans for heaven and earth. And that's what I want you to understand. There is a spiritual realm that is going on right now. And there is a battle going on and has been for many, many, many years. And I actually believe without question that the world and what God's doing here has more to do with what God's revealing to the spiritual realm than what we think. I think that God has chosen to create the universe and the world to reveal some things to Satan and his followers and also to his existing angels because the Bible says they even long to look into this relationship that we've been given. But there is a battle in the spiritual realm that most Christians are unaware of. Now, let me caution you. I want to talk to you about what's going on in the spiritual realm, but I don't want you to try to go fight the spiritual realm. I want you to walk with Jesus and submit yourself to God and let the Lord do it. But if you're oblivious to what's going on in the spiritual realm, you'll lose a lot of battles here on the earth. Go to Revelation chapter 10. 
Look at verses 1 through 11. In Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 and following, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his, his right hand, foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring when he called out, and the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh, trumpet, seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then a voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel, who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. There's a lot more I'm going to show you in just a second, but I just laid this passage out for a reason. We see that we have a responsibility to work according to God's purposes with the angels who are working for God's purposes, and they work on our behalf. But we aren't to just sit back and say, well, that's just going to happen in the spiritual realm. No, God tells us that we're to pray, we're to walk in obedience, we're to share what we've been, we've been told, we've been given responsibility, and we're to act on it. There are angels that are in charge. I'm not going to take you there, but if you look at Revelation 16, verses 1 through 7, there are angels that are in charge of the waters. There are other angels that are being held until the time when they're going to be set loose to, to destroy the earth. There are angels that have all different levels and ranks. And just like there are angels that all have different levels and ranks and they work God's purposes, I hope you understand that when Satan had his rebellion, I think personally it happened before the creation of the world, that when Satan had his rebellion, a third of the angels went with him, the Bible says, and they became what we know now as demons. But there are levels of ranks in the demon realm as well. And they're quite powerful. And you couldn't even mess with the lowest ranked one. We've been created lower than them. And that's why even Michael, when disputing with Satan over the body of Moses, didn't dare bring an accusation against him, the book of Jude said, but says, the Lord rebuke you. I don't want you to go storm the gates of hell. The Bible actually says in Hebrews chapter 12, that, sorry, not chapter 12, chapter 2, that at present we don't see everything in subject, subjection to Jesus. For his reasons, for his purposes, even though he's been given full authority, he's allowing them to have some reign for his purposes. They're working on his behalf. He's going to use what they do and what they do well to accomplish his purposes. And therefore, if Jesus, who has all authority, is not out there exercising full authority, we as Christians should not walk around saying, I command you, Satan. I command you, demon. You've got to be careful. Don't mess with stuff that's bigger than you. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he'll leave, but not because of you, because of Jesus, who lives within you. But you need to know that there are angels that are there working on our behalf right now. 
Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Oh, and as we look at this stuff, I'm always a little trepidatious because I don't want you to start worshiping angels. I don't want you to start praying to your angel. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Did you catch that? Daniel was in a time when he was struggling and God sent an angel to encourage him and to touch him and to strengthen him. We got something better though, don't we? We got the Holy Spirit himself living within us. You don't got to pray to an angel. Yes, there are angels that are out there being used by God for his purposes. I've shared this story in times past, and I'm going to try to tell it as fast as I can because I want to make sure we get done here tonight. But listen, years ago when I was pastor in Chicago, uh, the worship pastor and I felt led to take a group of men from our church to the Promise Keepers March on Washington, the million men on Washington Mall that happened back then. And we filled a 15-passenger van. We rounded guys up last minute, and we said, let's go do it. We booked a hotel just outside of D.C., and when we got to the hotel, I realized we needed to gas up the van so we were ready to go in the morning and try to find a way in. But I'd never been to D.C. I didn't know how to get in there, and we didn't even know where we were going. So I asked the worship pastor, because I'm the pastor, but I figured maybe the worship pastor knows. Have you ever been to D.C.? Do you know where we're going tomorrow? He goes, I got no clue. I go, we're in trouble. Because we got a van full of people that think we know what we're doing, and we don't have a clue. So he goes, let's pray. So we prayed in the van and said, Lord, help. We don't even know how to get in there. We don't know where we're going. You have to realize a million men are traveling from all over the country to come to D.C. It was crazy crowded. So we go across the street from the hotel to get some gas. And while we're pumping gas, remember, we had just prayed, help us, Lord. We, we're pumping gas. A lady comes up and she goes, are you two guys promise keepers? And we're like, yeah, why? She goes, well, um, my husband and I are here from out of town, and uh, he wanted to go to that event, but it's going to be crazy. Can he ride with you in your van? And we're like, sure, but where's he staying? And she goes, that hotel right across the street, same one we were in. We were like, oh, that's awesome. That's the hotel we're in. She said, that's great. And uh, um, I said, what's his name? And, 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 she, and it, was, it was like John Smith. You know, it was like the most plain name. And we said, well, have him ready at 6 a.m. We're going to be hitting the road at 6. He gets in the van. He sits right behind the driver. And the driver just out of, offhand says, hey, John, have you ever been to D.C.? And he goes, yeah, I used to work here. Do you know where you're going? Sure. And he let us to a subway stop, which was the furthest out. We parked for free. We got on that subway, and aren't we glad we got on the first one? Because by the time you got to the next stop, you couldn't get on the subway because of all the people trying to get on the subway system. And we were literally jam-packed watching all these people just waving at them as we stopped at every stop. Sorry, this one's full. And we were into D.C. But we get down underground where all the subways come, and, and we're, we said, John, we don't know where we're going. He goes, follow me. We go up the escalators. We get up in the city, and he goes, head straight down this street, and you'll run into the mall. And so our guys just started heading. And then I thought, well... Let me just invite John. Hey, and I said, John, that's awesome. Thanks. Why don't you just come hang out with us today? And he said, no, my work is done. And I thought, that's weird, but I'm losing the guys. So I head back to go catch up with my guys. And the second I turn, I realize I'm going to invite him one more time. And he's gone. And I can tell you right now, 
I believe without a doubt the Lord sent us an angel. We prayed. And it just so happened that a lady says, oh, my husband will go with you. And he, by the way, on that whole trip, never said a word. And once we asked him, do you know where you're going? That was it. Folks, don't go praying to your angel, though. Turn to Jesus. But he's got a lot of things at his disposal. Go to Psalm 103. Oh, and not only that, you're greatly loved. Go to Psalm 103. Look at verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, O you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The mighty angels do his word. They obey the voice of his word. But just like I said, there are those angels that didn't rebel who are working for God right now, and there's all different ranks. There are those that are on the other side and are still powerful. Did you catch that he called them the kings of Persia? And there was one who was really powerful, who was the prince of Persia. And then he said after that, he's going to go, not only go back and fight with him one more time, he's then going to go fight with the prince of Greece. By the way, what nation was going to be in power next after Persia? We've been studying it. Greece. Folks, I don't know the details of it, but I can tell you this much. It appears from Scripture, and I'm going to show you that for Israel as well, that there are angels on the demonic side and on God's side who are responsible over a certain area geographically. And when something is going on in a certain area, there are demons at work behind the scenes. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll start in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power or the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me read that to you again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Oh, you might think your issue is with your spouse or with your boss. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Folks, we're in a battle, and it's going on, and most people are oblivious to it. And if you're oblivious to it, you're going to lose. Oh, and by the way, whenever I compete against somebody, if it's a you-against-me kind of a thing, like tennis or ping-pong or basketball, I like to win. Actually, I want to win. My wife always says to me when I go play something, she goes, Jim, just go play for the fun of it for a change. And I say, I do. Winning is fun. But if I'm going to play you ping pong, or if I'm going to play you basketball, play even a game of horse, I'm going to say, let's warm up. And you know what I'm doing when I'm warming up? I'm wanting to see whether or not you've got a good backhand or whether you've got a good forehand. I'm going to, as we're playing basketball, say, hey, let's try this shot. Or let's try left-handed. And I'm going to try to find out where you're weak. And then when it's time to play, guess what? I'm going to go after your weakness. Satan does the same thing. That's why you need the whole armor of God. Because if there's an area that you're weak, that's where he's going to go after you. And you need to understand that you need all of God's armor. All of it. The word. The helmet of salvation, knowing that you're saved. The shield of faith. All of these things. The breastplate of righteousness. Uh, folks, let me just say this to you. If there's an area you're weak, that's where Satan's going to go after you. Now, I'm going to come back to the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on in the time we have left. But I want to point out to you something that some of you probably know, but others of you might not. Not only were there prince, a prince in the demon realm, a prince of Persia, there are angels that are over certain areas for God as well. Go to, back to Daniel chapter 10. Look at verses 13 and verse 21. And Daniel 10, 13 he says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes on God's side, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Look at verse 21. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There's none who contends by my side against these except Michael. Listen closely. Your prince. Go over to Daniel chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Talking about the very, very end. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And he goes on and says, there'll be a time of trouble such as it's never been. We're not going to take a uh, time to turn there, but if you want to go look at Revelation 12, 7 through 12, you'll see that at the midpoint of the, of the tribulation period, Satan is going to be defeated by Michael and his angels. Satan and his angels are fighting against Michael and his angels, and they're going to be defeated and cast out of heaven finally down to the earth, and things are going to get really bad on the earth. There are angels that are actually responsible for overseeing. At least we know the nation of Israel has an angel. That's their chief angel. But I want to point out a couple of things to you real quickly, and then we're going to close with something tonight. I want to show you some more scriptures that talk to you about the spiritual battle that's going on. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 10. He's been talking about God's mystery being revealed in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, God wants to use the church right now 
to reveal his wisdom to the spiritual realm. Didn't Jesus say that we're to do our good deeds before men so that they may glorify our fathers in heaven? Yes, he did. But you're on a bigger stage than that, folks. If the angels are wanting to look into this relationship that we've been given, and the angelic realm is observing what's going on on the earth, you may think you're being okay because what you do in secret, no one else sees. Of course, God sees. Do you realize that you're bringing shame to your heavenly father when you do what you do in secret because the angels are watching? The Bible talks about being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses as well. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 3 and 4. I want you to see that this... There's a spiritual battle going on that most of us are oblivious to. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, small g, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Father, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. We need God's help in this victory. You got loved ones that need to be saved? Pray that God would be able to open their eyes because some of them might have demons that have blinded them and Satan has blinded them in such a way it doesn't matter what you say, but God's more powerful. And you can ask him. As he was able to remove the demons when man couldn't at times. Ask him. Go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, look at verse 19. It says, we know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let me ask you a question. Are you surprised that the world is acting the way they're acting? No, they're doing the best they can. You don't have Jesus. That's what you're going to do too. You're going to live for self. You're going to do whatever you can to make yourself happier. And even if that means fighting over somebody else, the world acting the way it is should not surprise you, folks. How many times we sit around saying, I can't believe how bad the world is and how the Bible says it's going to happen. Go to first. Go ahead. I was going to say I was reminded, at least under Caligula and Nero, I mean, mm -hmm. they were burning Christians as the lamps along the road. It, we haven't even seen yet what's to happen. Let me say this to you. 1 John 4, 4 says this, though. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. In John chapter 15, you don't have time to turn there, verses 18 through 21. Jesus said, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Yet we want the world to like us. No, don't be rude. You don't have to be offensive. The gospel is offensive by itself. Just love them. But don't be surprised when you're not accepted. Now, we're going to close tonight with something that is said to Daniel in chapter 10 in the last verse. Verse 21. He says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There's none who contends by my side except the, ex, with, against these except Michael, your prince. But look closely at what he says. I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. Now, that does not mean the Bible. It's different. Actually, this word book of truth could be translated. Um, I have it written down here. It could mean the works of truth or the words of truth. This is not the way it's worded here in the in the Hebrew. It's not the Bible. In other words, 
He says, I'm going to tell you what has all been written down by God in his book of what is to come, the words of truth. Now, it should not surprise us that God would have future things already written down and settled before they happen, right? If you're not sure about that, let me read to you real quickly Revelation 13. Revelation 13, verses 5 through 8. Listen to what it says. It says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. These are tribulation saints. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. God already knows how it's all going to play out, and he's already got the names of everybody that's going to believe written down. Because he knows. And he writes it down. In Isaiah 48, verses 3 through 8, because of time, I won't have you turn there. Write it down. Take a look at it. God clearly says, the thing that makes you know that I'm God and there is no other is I tell you what happens before it does. I say, it's Isaiah 48, verses 3 through 8. He says, I declare it, and then it happens. And he pretty much says, go try that with your idols. I declare it, and then it happens. And the Bible says that he records everything. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, it says, And those who feared the Lord gathered together, and the Lord took notice, because they spoke to one another about the Lord, and he wrote down their names. And he said, these will be my treasured possession. He keeps track. By the way, you do know Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, in the great white throne judgment, the Bible says that all the wicked dead are going to be gathered up at the vinyl end and stand before the great white throne, and books are going to be opened, and everything they've ever done had been recorded in the books. Next week, we'll begin looking at the specifics of what was to come to Israel and how, looking back, we're going to be able to see that God predicted it perfectly so that we would know that He is God and so that Israel one day would know that He is God. Folks, He's keeping track. And don't be surprised that God has a book called The Words of Truth. The angel comes and says, I'm sent here to show you what's already been written in the words of truth. In other words, God already sees the future and he's going to tell you what's going to happen to your people Israel and to your land. Next week, we're going to start breaking it down. I love you. Thanks for coming.